Well, I want to begin this morning with a, with a question. How much should a Christian give? It's always an awkward topic. Few things are nearer to the heart and more private than bank accounts and wallets. You add to that our living in an age of materialism right, with the constant bombardment, constant pressure to acquire more, uh, the, the implicit urge that we have for bigger and better, and, and couple that with a sinful inclination to greed and jealousy, and we have a recipe for confusion and chaos when it comes to Christian giving. You know, John Rockefeller, in his day, he was the richest man in the world, and he was being interviewed uh, by a reporter, and the reporter asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? And his answer captured almost perfectly the way that we think about wealth and money and income today. His answer was just a little more. And it's easy for believers to fall into the trap of saying and wanting just a little more. And it is a trap. The love of money is a snare. It killed Demas. You remember Demas traveled with Paul? What does Paul write about him at the end of his life? Demas has abandoned me and gone back to the world because he loved money. Judas sold out the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. The rich young ruler went away very sad because he had many possessions and was unwilling to part with them. And the Lord Himself warns us over and over again, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. No one can serve God and money. And so right out of the gate this morning before we can look at Christian giving and, and what the Bible calls us to, we really have to take a look at our own hearts first and approach the subject knowing that money in this world is a sacred calf. It always has been, and, and it can easily become an idol in our own lives. And so I say this kind of as a disclaimer. You know, as we look at the Christian responsibility of giving this morning, it's never an easy subject but the Bible addresses it over and over and over and over again. And though we're not going to be spending a lot of time in any passage in particular, we're going to look over a number of passages and trace from Genesis on the principles of Christian giving. Now, now let me say this. I don't know what anybody in the church gives. I don't. I do know that many in the church are very generous and have wrestled with what does it mean to be a Christian? And what does that mean my finances are going to look like? So I'm not, uh, I'm not pointing out anybody in particular, and I don't want you to think that. I just have had in the last few weeks a lot of people come to me asking, what does the Bible say about giving? And so this morning, we're going to take a look at just that. Before we do, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would comfort anxious souls this morning that you would remind us of your ability to provide. I pray, Lord, that we would want to honor you with our wealth, with what you have given to us, and I pray that you would help us to think about it clearly. 
Lord, you, you never do us any wrong in anything you do. It is always for our good. And so we thank you. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts to joyfully hear your word this morning. I pray that you would help me to preach, Lord. We have nothing apart from you, but in Christ we have all things. Every promise you have ever made is yes and amen in him. And I pray this morning we would see what that means for our finances as Christians. And it's in your name we pray, and it's to you that we look. Help us this morning, Lord. Help me this morning. Amen. I don't expect to exhaust the subject that we're going to speak about today, but just to introduce it to you. And I've been very concerned in recent days over many of the things that are going on in our world. And one of the things that's continued to be in the news is the effects of inflation, the problems of economics, the problems of supplying food for the future, the problems dealing with gasoline and the rising problems of fuel costs. All of those things are laying a tremendous weight on the Christian in a very specific area. And that's the area of the Christian and his finances. Now those are not my words. That's a quote from John MacArthur from a sermon he preached in 1975, which is not 25 years ago, 50 years ago. And I bring up that quote just to remind us that nothing ever changes. Technology changes. The problems never do. Problems that we have today are the same problems that they had 50 years ago. And I imagine Christians in the first century dealt with the same things. There is nothing new under the sun. And every generation that comes along is going to face in one way or the other everything you're facing. You know, f food prices are going up. Well, Christians in the past faced, faced famines regularly. This is nothing new. And so I begin with this to encourage us. And I think it is encouraging because it reminds us that we're not facing anything unique. We're not living in special times that require special messages and special responses from the church. We're living in a world that always has ups and downs, always has. And we know that the Word of God, the Bible, never changes because the author knew. He knew what kind of world we lived in. And the wisdom in the Word never needs to be amended and never needs to be adapted because of the circumstances of our day. And so this morning, we will see what the Word calls us to in regard to giving. And we won't exhaust it. This is just a basic introduction. So, so lots of passages and things, and you're going to say, well, what about this? They'll get left out. But we are going to look at three points in particular. One... What is the application of the Old Testament tithe for Christians? Two, why and how are Christians called to give? And three, principles and priorities in giving. Right? Is the Old Testament, Old Testament tithe, how does that apply to Christians? Why and how are Christians called to give? And then principles and priorities in giving. So first, 
What's the relationship between the Old Testament tithe and Christians? Well, let's take a look first at what the tithe in the Old Testament was. It's in the law. The people of Israel were required to give one-tenth of all that they received from the land to the priests and the Levites. It's well-known, straightforward, relatively simple command. Whatever the Lord gave to the people of Israel, they were to tithe it. And all that means, that word tithe, it means a tenth portion. So they were commanded to give one-tenth of the harvest and one-tenth of the flocks and one-tenth of the fruit and one-tenth of everything considered income in the ancient world. They were to give that to the Lord. And this is first found in Leviticus 27, 30-33. Leviticus 27, last chapter in the book of Leviticus, verses 30-33. Every tithe of the land whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every, and every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal, all that passes under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. This is the first mention of the Mosaic tithe, and it's very clearly a tenth of everything that grows and of all of the animals. And some of the produce can be redeemed by adding a fifth of its value to it and buying it back. So if you had grown some grapes, and they were really good grapes, and these are the grapes set aside, and you really wanted them, you could buy them back for 120, or for 20% more than what they were worth. And uh, the animals, the picture is of uh, how shepherds would count the number of their sheep when they brought them in. So they would take them out for a season of pasturing, and then they would bring them into the pen. And when they were bringing them into the pen, there was a little door in the pen. They would put the staff over the, the door. Only one animal could go through at a time, and they would count them as they went in. And it says, every tenth of the animals that go in belongs to the Lord. And if you wanted to make a substitute... Tried to, tried to say, well, I really like this one. We'll switch it out for this one. It goes on to say, don't do that because then both of the animals will belong to the Lord and you won't have either of them. It's for the Lord. And there are other passages about tithing, like Numbers 18, 21 through 20, and 24. Uh, Numbers 18, 21 says, To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. Verse 24, for the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. And so in Leviticus, the, tithes was, the tithe was for the Lord, but now in Numbers, we see the Lord gives that tithe to the Levites. So they would be free from working the fields and have the necessary time to labor in the temple. They were set apart. The Levites were for keeping and maintaining the temple, and so God has given them a tent, requires a tent to be given to them, and commanded the people to sustain them so that they would be able to do the work that God had called them to, and thus the people, all of the people, would be blessed. So the tithe is given to the Levites as an inheritance, freeing them to do the upkeep and the maintenance of the temple. Next is Deuteronomy 12. 10 and 11. God here tells his people where they should take their tithe. He tells them once they enter the land, God is going to designate a place, 
And when God designates that place, they are to stop offering their sacrifices wherever they want. Because up until this point, every group or family would have a town or there'd be somewhere set aside where they'd go and they'd give their offering. He says, I'm going to establish a place. It turns out to be the temple in Jerusalem. And that's where you're going to take all of your, well, verse, uh, verse 10. He says, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present and all of your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Now here we have a lot more than just tithes. He names burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, contributions, and their finest vow offerings. Now this is important because here we see that the Lord requires more than just a tenth from these people in the Old Testament. He required daily offerings to be presented. Whenever anybody sealed uh, uh, or made a vow, they would seal it with a sacrifice. This is why in the Bible, sometimes in the Old Testament, you see two people will meet, they'll come to an agreement, they'll offer a sacrifice. Why? Because the sacrifice, in a, in a way, is the signature of that vow. And that was to be done in Israel at the temple. Then they had their contributions, and this was a, a poll tax for the maintenance of the temple or the tabernacle itself which is why it's called later on a temple tax, and this was a half shekel of silver for every man. So a half shekel of silver for every man in Israel. Uh, it's interesting, in Josephus' time, so this is the time of Christ, uh, around 70 AD, he writes about the impressive caravans of armed guards traveling from Babylon to Jerusalem because the Jews in Babylon collected the temple tax and sent it to, uh, to Jerusalem to upkeep the temple. And, uh, and they were massively armed because they didn't want to get robbed carrying all of this money through the empire, the Roman Empire. But uh, the temple is where they would take this temple tax. That was their contribution. And the temple is where they would bring their tithes. But I want you to notice it's plural. It says tithes, not tithe. Tenths, not ten. And why is it Plural. It's plural because there was more than one tithe. In fact, there were three tithes. Two of them were annual. One of them was every three years. The second annual tithe, it's in Deuteronomy 14, 22, and 24. And we already looked at the one for the Levites. This is the tithe for the festivals. Deuteronomy 14, 22, and 24. It says, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from your field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and of the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. It goes on to say, if the distance is too far to travel to bring all of this stuff, then you can sell it, convert it into money, and then bring that money to Jerusalem and buy whatever you want. Verse 26, it says, you buy oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, so long as you eat it in the presence of the Lord and rejoice. And so this is a tithe set aside for worship, and it's how all of the festivals you read about in the Old Testament were funded. People would set aside one-tenth of their produce and have a feast together three times a year. And then in verse 28 of the same chapter, a third tithe is listed. Verse 28, at the end of every three years, this is a three-year tithe, at the end of every three years you shall bring out 
all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow who is within your walls, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. And so this is a tithe collected every three years, stored up and set aside for the poor, the orphans, the widows, the aliens, and the Levites scattered throughout the land. They don't have a portion in the land, so they have this. And essentially, this is a poor tax, right? A third, a triennial tithe set aside for the poor. And one more passage dealing with tithes is Deuteronomy 26 and the whole chapter and uh, it, is this, it, it isn't a commanded tithe, it's not a fourth tithe, but it's a description of the ceremony of giving the tithes. It says, I'll, I'll summarize it for you, it says they come to the temple, they humble themselves before the Lord, they remember what the Lord has done for them in delivering them from Egypt, and they rejoice because of God's goodness towards them. They rejoice because of what God has given them. They rejoice because of what God has done for them. And that is at the heart of it. This is a very important chapter because it gives the heart of the giving of God's people. Old Testament and new. Our giving is an expression of our rejoicing and our thankfulness for what God has done. You see this in the construction of the tabernacle, by the way. You remember in the book of Exodus, they're building the tabernacle, and, uh, and Moses says to all of the people, bring, uh, we, need, we need gold and silver and bra- uh, brass, we need, or bronze, we need uh, goat skins and linens and, and jewels and embroidered uh, colored, colored yarn. And so they say, this is what we need, acacia, wood, all these things, bring them here. And we're told that the people bring so much that Moses has to tell them, okay, that's enough, you can stop now. You know why they brought so much? Do you remember what happened immediately before they were told to bring all of this to the temple? Or to the tabernacle? The golden calf. And what happened? The message was, that's it, you're done, you're being wiped out, I will not go with you anymore. Moses intercedes, God relents, the people realize... We're not going to be destroyed. God's going to continue with us. And so when Moses says, and here's what he requires for the tabernacle, they don't stop piling up things until they're told because they're thankful for having received mercy from the Lord. And if you've ever wondered what the Old Testament system of tithes was, this was it. Thankful giving and not of 10%. It worked out to around, if you include the temple tax, 23.5%. And so that's the Mosaic tithe, 235 not 10%. And it was used for the running of, of the government. You, know, you remember, they were what was called a theocracy. A theocracy, that's a type of government where God rules. And this rule was carried out by the priests and by the prophets. They were the civil government and the religious officials, and these tithes funded it. You know, why does this matter so much? Well, how often do you hear that Christians are commanded to give a tithe, a tenth, just like they were in the Old Testament? In that time, they gave a tenth to the temple. Christians, therefore, are required to give a tenth 
to the church. You've probably heard that at one point or another. The only problem is it's not accurate because that was not what the Israelites were required to give. They were required to give 23.5%. And so if we're going to have any degree of biblical consistency here to take the Old Testament tithe and apply it to the Christians as the model for giving, we're going to have to say it requires 23.5%. And for that reason, I am persuaded that the Levitical tithe is not the model for Christian giving. And that's not just my opinion either, by the way. This is what the church has taught for a very long time. In the book of Acts, the major argument, how Jewish does a Gentile have to be in order to be considered a Christian? That's the question being asked. And the answer? Abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from meat that's been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Nothing about circumcision, nothing about tithing to the temple. And history backs this up. The early church didn't practice tithing. None of the early church fathers espoused it. The Catholic church was ambiguous about it. The reformers did not support it outright. Uh, for example, Martin Luther interpreted the command on tithing to be the equivalent of a command to believers to pay their taxes. In the same way that the Jews were obligated to the theocratic government, Christians were obligated to the civil government, and Calvin held a similar position, and they also believed that it was the responsibility of the government to then pay that money to support the church. So they would uh, collect 10%, the government would, and then take that 10% and give it to the church, which is the reason why, to this day, the Lutheran church in Germany is supported by tax dollars, the Reformed church in Switzerland is uh, funded by tax dollars. The Anglican church in England is paid for by the taxes that people pay. And in some jurisdictions, the Catholic church is supported. These are established churches. An established church means the government officially supports and backs them. John Robinson, or, uh, but then when you get to the Puritan story and other nonconformists, so that's English churches that were not Anglican, the churches from which we uh, would derive our history and traditions, tithing was viewed with even more suspicion. John Robinson, who was a pastor of those who would board the Mayflower, so this is a pastor of the Pilgrims in 19, or 1620, he declared that when you get over there, abolish tithing among you. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, maintained that the paying of tithes was ceremonial, such as went and came, uh, came in and went out with the typical priesthood. Spurgeon, G. Campbell Morgan, Jonathan Edwards, all of them opposed applying the tithe to the New Testament church. So where did tithing come from? And when did it become a popular practice? The late 1800s in the United States of America. Uh, very late, 1890s late. In fact, the early uh, proponents of it are recorded as saying they have rediscovered the discipline of tithing that the church had lost for almost 2,000 years. And why this rediscovery? Well, the birth of America. With that, the states no longer supported the church. Prior to, the pa prior to this, in every state in the Union of the United States, they had their own established churches. In Virginia and much of the South, it was the Anglican Church. In Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Connecticut, it was the Congregationalists. But that was done away with in the 1880s. They 
began to stop funding the church. Churches were not as well attended as they had been. People were becoming more worldly in a number of ways. And the churches began to run out of money very quickly. And it's at that point in church history, in the United States, that you begin to see people preach, Christians should give 10% because that's what they gave in the Old Testament. The Levites gave, or were given 10%, Christians should give 10%. And it was preached because people simply weren't giving, and unless they could be obligated, they, they wouldn't. And that's the history of it. There were other ways the church tried to uh, raise money, renting pews being one of them. But the church did not preach tithing as obligatory in any compelling way until about 130 years ago. And it was accomplished by a misrepresentation of the Old Testament tithe. I think, obviously, we should be able to see that obligatory giving of 10%, a commanded tithe applied to the church, has little support from Scripture or church history, at least not the Levitical tithe. So what does the Bible require? What are Christians required to give? Well, let's go back and we'll work our way forward again. And this time we won't start in Leviticus, but we're going to start in Genesis. Genesis 14, 18, which is the first mention of a tithe or a tenth in the Bible. 14, 18. And Melchizedek. So Abraham, uh, Abraham's nephew Lot had just been captured. Sodom had been defeated. He's been captured. They were carrying him off. Abraham attacked this army, defeated them, plundered them, brings, the, brings the, uh, the, the money back, and this is what happens in Genesis 14, 18. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. You have something similar in Genesis 28. Jacob promises one-tenth of whatever the Lord gave to him. If God brings him safely back into the promised land, he will give a tenth of it back to God. Now, why are these two instances so important? Well, they're important because they set for us a biblical example. And in the ancient world, if you wanted to honor somebody financially, the expected amount was one-tenth. This isn't just something Abraham and Jacob did. All of the nations surrounding them, the pagan nations, they would regularly give one-tenth to their gods. If a, if a general had been victorious, had a great victory, he would, to show his thanks, give one-tenth uh, of the plunder to a god or a king of his choosing. In some cultures in the ancient world, before any property could be exchanged, so you wanted to sell a field, you had to prove first that you had paid a tenth to the local shrine, not as a, a tax or as a fee, but as a representation of the seller's honor and credibility. You're not, you're not giving to, to the gods. How can we trust you financially? Giving a tenth was a set amount considered sufficient for bestowing honor. And this is not just in Abraham's time. This is from Abraham's time all the way up to the time of the Romans and the time of Christ. 
Giving a tenth was what was considered acceptable and appropriate for honoring a deity. To give less would be universally in that ancient culture dishonorable, which of course only makes sense. I mean, if you want to honor someone with a gift, the amount of honor you give is reflected by the value of the gift, right? A large gift bestows large honor, small gift bestows little honor. And maybe sometimes you've struggled, you're, you're going to get a gift for somebody who's done some kindness for you and you want to thank them, and, and you, you have trouble figuring out what kind of gift is appropriate. Well, in the ancient world, you wouldn't be wondering. 10% was what was considered appropriate when large honor was due. Why does that matter? It matters because it means if you were alive in the ancient world and you wanted to honor God with your finances, it wouldn't be an arbitrary command up to your own interpretation. If Paul said, honor God with your money, everyone who heard him in that original audience would understand that honoring meant giving 10%, or at least that was the norm, that was the customary amount for honoring someone with wealth or with a windfall. And if that was the case, then the original audience would understand that to honor the Lord meant to give a tenth. Now, it's not a command, and Abraham and Jacob, their giving is not normative, but it is exemplary. It is an example that the Bible holds up for us, and in the context of the ancient world is held up for us to look to. And so for that reason, the tenth is not a strict command, but I believe it is a clear guideline. If you want to honor someone appropriately, the example set forward in Scripture is 10%. But the monetary value of the gift isn't the only thing that makes a gift valuable. It's also the means of the giver. It's like the woman at the temple. You remember, she gives the smallest amount, two pennies, and yet she gives all that she has. And Jesus tells the disciples that she gave more than all of the others because she gave everything she had to live on. She is commended by Jesus for her giving. Now, if you read the account in Mark 12, 28 through 13, 2, you see at the same time he commends the widow, he condemns the scribes and the Pharisees and the temple system and says, he says, uh, beware of the scribes who devour widows. The widow comes and puts in her money the disciples say, look at this impressive building. Jesus says, it's all coming down. He's not going to allow any institution that would take the last two pennies of a widow to continue. But the point is still there. The value of the gift is not only determined by a percentage, though a percentage is helpful, but it's also determined by the means of the giver. What's the implication? For some, 10% could be tantamount to robbing God. For others, 10% could be a terrible, undue burden. Though, for us, the richest and wealthiest people who have ever lived on planet Earth, it's hard to imagine how great a burden it could actually be. Now, the clearest passage in the Bible on giving, and there, there are a lot, and we haven't covered even a tenth of them, but the clearest is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And for time's sake, we're not going to read the whole passage, but I do want to point out seven guideposts from this passage on giving, on Christian giving. 
Seven guideposts. Number one, giving is sacrificial. Chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. So the Macedonians, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians about the giving of the Macedonians. It says, In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. The Macedonian church, that's a small nation north of Greece, they were suffering. They were enduring severe persecution that led to extreme poverty. And what do they do? They heard about a need. They heard about a church where the people had nothing to eat. And out of their poverty, they gave as much as they could entirely on their own, under no compulsion. And in fact, it says they gave beyond their ability. What's that mean? Literally, it means they sat down and decided, some of them, to go with less, right? This week, we're only going to eat twice a day instead of three times a day so that we'll have enough to send to these people in Jerusalem. Their giving was costly. It's the exact opposite of how most of us respond when economic trials come, right? The first place to cut is our generosity. These people gave more. And this is an example commended to the Corinthians. They are told to excel in the grace of giving. And excelling in the grace of giving looks like what the Macedonians did. Number two, second guidepost in this passage. Giving is a test of your love. Verse 8, I'm not commanding you, Paul says, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. What you give is a reflection of your love for Christ. And this is a lot more convicting than a command, isn't it? Right? If it's a command, I could clench my teeth and just do it and clear the conscience. That's not what happens here. He even says, I don't command it. I just want to know if your giving reflects your love for Jesus. Christian giving reflects this. Number three, Christ is our example. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. Jesus is our example of giving. And how much did he give? He gave everything. He was rich beyond measure, and for your sake, for our sake, he became poor. And this is not just abstract language. This happened. The king of heaven and earth who owns a cattle on a thousand hills forsook all of it to come to earth in order to save us so that one day we will go to be with Him and to own the cattle on a thousand hills with Christ. He became poor so that we could be made rich. Now, if you think that this means God wants you to be poor so that your neighbor can be rich, number four, the goal of Christian giving is equality. That's the goal. Christ is our example. Equality is the goal. Verse 13, our desire is not 
that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed. Right? I don't want them to have food and now because of what you gave you have no food. But that there might be equality. At the present time your plenty will supply their need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little. So the goal is not that some become poor and others become rich, but that everybody has enough. So the rich, they don't become poor from charity, and the poor don't become rich from charity. The point is, everyone's needs are being met. And that's one of the major goals of giving, that the needs of everyone in the church are met. No one in the church should be lacking the necessities of life. Nobody. No one should be going without food or shelter among the Lord's people anywhere. I mean, these guys are gathering up money to send uh, off to a church. They didn't even have a postcard and a picture. And they're sending the money because they hear there's a need from the Apostle Paul. Number five, giving must be willing. Verse 11, 12, and chapter 9, verse 7. So in verse 11, let your eager willingness materialize into the gift. Right? So don't just be willing and say you're willing and not do it. Let it materialize into the gift. Willingness is what makes the gift acceptable. That's verse 12. The, the, the amount of the gift is not what makes it acceptable. The willingness of the gift is what makes it acceptable. And then verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Not under compulsion. You can't be compelled to give. The moment it becomes a sense of compulsion, what does that mean? You know, I could see people saying, well, yeah, I I don't like this. No one should ever talk to me or press me about giving money or make me feel convicted about it because I can't give without, I can't give rightly without feeling compelled. I could see someone saying that. But if they did, they would have missed the point. God loves a willing, cheerful giver. And the passage so far has been laboring why we should be thankful and willing and cheerful when we give. And for someone to be stingy and tight-fisted and reluctant as a Christian, it means there's something wrong in the heart. I mean, the Macedonians, in their extreme poverty, were begging Paul, Please, let us send more to these people who are in need. Please, let us give you this to support your ministry to the Corinthians. Paul had to stop them. They weren't asking, what's the minimal amount I can give to soothe my conscience? They were asking, what's the maximal amount that I can afford to give to these people? That's the fifth point. God loves a cheerful giver, and we have every reason to give cheerfully. Now, why are we reluctant? We are reluctant always, almost always, because we say, if I give, it's going to hurt. If I give, then this is going to happen. I'm not going to be able to afford this or afford that, which is why the sixth point comes so naturally afterward. Giving will not hurt you. Verses 6, 8, 10, and 11. It says, Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. God is able to uh, bless you abundantly so that you will be able to give. It increases for you a harvest of righteousness. 
And the reason why this is not like anything the prosperity gospel preaches, because that's the trap you can fall into in these verses. So you're saying, if I give, God will give me more. What's the difference from, from the televangelist on the TV saying, send me a check for $1,000 and you plant a seed and it's going to grow back to $10,000 for you? It has to do with the heart. Verse 11, you will be enriched. All right, so give sacrificially. What's the result? You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The goal isn't to get rich. God blesses financially those who give so that they will have more to give. And through their giving, God is glorified, right? He who is faithful with little will be given little. He who is faithful, or he who is faithful with little will be given much, right? And then they use that much that they've been given to continue to be more faithful and store up treasures for themselves in heaven. You know, I always think of, uh, of uh, the Letourneau Heavy Equipment Company. Maybe you've heard this story. They, they built the largest loader in the world, front-end loader, and they were innovators. In, in fact, they provided most of the ground-moving equipment used by the U.S. military in World War II. And the owner was a Christian, R.G. Letourneau. He was a, a devout Christian, and he made a practice. Well, he, 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 was, uh, he was running his business. Money was coming in. He became a Christian. He said, I'm going to start giving 10% of, of what comes in. He was giving 10%, and he said, and as I gave 10%, I seemed to be more blessed. And so because I was more blessed, I began to give 20%. And I was still more blessed. And he continued and gave 30 40 and then 50%. And then he continued to go to 60 70, 80, and in a very short amount of, of time, just a few years, R.G. Letourneau was giving away 90% of his income and living on 10% of his income. Gave away 90, lived on 10. He got the point. He never, ever was in need. On his gravestone, it's written, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Or John Rockefeller. You remember I mentioned him at the beginning, his quip to the interviewer. Well, it was just a quip. It was a joke. And it wasn't an accurate depiction of his life. He gave over a third of his total wealth away and 50% of his yearly income. His father had been a con man, had been a thief. And his conscience troubled him so much over the, over the uh, occupation of his father. It was one of the things that actually drove him to Christianity. And when he be, uh, became a Christian, he gave generously half of, his wealth away, half of his income and the third of his wealth away. And on his gravestone, right, because he realized he was delivered from the futile way of life he inherited from his dad, on his gravestone is Ephesians 4.28, which says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so the principle teaches that those who give more will be entrusted with more to give, and they will, by doing so, store up for themselves lasting treasure in heaven. Or 1 Timothy 6, it says this, To the rich... Don't trust in riches. Don't be arrogant, but be generous. 
Everyone in this room is in danger of arrogance and trusting in our own riches and becoming hoarders and not being generous. Right? Whether the bank account's big or small. Don't worry. Generosity might cost you, but it will never, ever hurt you. Number seven. Giving is obedience to the gospel. Giving is obedience to the gospel. Freely you have received, freely give, verse 13. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. The gift Paul is speaking of there is the gift of God's Son. And what he's getting at is our giving is a reflection of the giving we have received freely from our Father in heaven. He gave His Son of infinite value. We are generously giving of our material wealth to reflect this. Lavish generosity is appropriate because lavish generosity is what was received. And when we do that, the Gospel is well furnished. God is praised. The saints give thanks for what He has done. And there is blessing all around. And this has been the measure of Christian giving from the beginning of the church. You remember how I said many in church history rejected tithing? The reason was because they did not think our giving ought to be so restricted. And you can look at many of the early church fathers. I just chose one, Irenaeus. He says, The Jews were constrained to a regular payment of tithes. Christians who have liberty, assign all their possessions to the Lord, bestowing freely not the lesser portion of their property, since they have the hope of greater things. All we have is consigned to the Lord because He has given us hope of greater things not in this world. Or there is G. Campbell Morgan in his sermon titled, The Grace of Giving. We are to arrange our substance as Christian people on the basis of the recognition of the fact that all belongs to Him. Consequently, it is not that I am to give Him a tenth part and hold the rest to spend according to the dictates of my own desire. The Christian man must recognize that not a tenth, but ten tenths belongs to God. And he has no right to spend anything save in accordance with the divine will. May I put the case quite simply, he says, for the youngest Christian here. Out of my income, I am to spend so much on food, clothing, shelter, learning, recreation, but all to the glory of God. If the method of my eating is not for the glory of God, then I waste God's money. If the method of my dress is not according to the glory of God, then I violate the principle of Christian life and of Christian giving. I must do all to the glory of God. And then Charles Spurgeon preaching this text from 2 Corinthians affirms that A Christian is not commanded to tithe, but rather to give according to his love for Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this, Yet this absence of law and rule does not mean that you are therefore to give less than the Jews did, but rather you shall give more. 
Because if I rightly understand what is implied in the term Christian generosity, it is to be to the example of Christ himself. Our text really gives the Christian law of generosity. For ye know that the, Lord, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might become rich. That is to say, we should give as we love. You know how much our Lord Jesus Christ loved by knowing how much he gave. He gave himself for us because he loved us with all of the force and energy of his nature. Why did the woman break the alabaster box and pour the precious ointment upon Christ's head when it might have been sold for much and the money given to the poor, or when she might have kept the ointment for herself? She gave much because she loved much. I commend to you that rule. Give as you love and measure your love by your gift. Spurgeon, by the way, could have been one of the wealthiest men in, men in London. He, he made over well over a few million dollars a year. He gave somewhere between 95 and 98 percent of it away. When he died, he left his wife 2,000 pounds, the equivalent of around $200,000, which is not much when you were a man who made millions and millions of dollars a year. The rest was given away. It's interesting, in his life he was told by the doctors, it would be good for you to go and live in this area uh, and, and get out of the smog of London. It would be good for your health. And as he was going, he was coming up out of the smog and he saw the, 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 the house that was uh, for sale, that was recommended to him. And he said, uh, upon seeing it, he said, oh no, no, that is far too grand for me. And he turned around and went back to live where he was living in London. And that was the end of it. He had no desire to exalt himself or with great ambition. Or John Bunyan, again, in his simple style of writing, he said, There was a man, some called him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. And so, no, the church is not commanded to tithe based on the Old uh, Testament system. However, each is called to give according to his or her means, to give according to his or her love for God, or love for Christ, love for the church, and love for the gospel. This is the basis and the guide of Christian giving. Now briefly, let me give some practical applications and encouragements. For one, if you want to do this, to give generously, you have to plan. It, it ought to be a part of your budget because it's never just going to happen on its own. It, it has to be at least a habit. You have to plan to be able to give. Paul says to, uh, to the Corinthians and, and elsewhere, he tells them, set aside at the start of every week a little bit to give so that when I come, I won't have to have, to have a big collection. You'll just have it. You can give it to me. We'll be on our way. Plan to give, Paul tells them. Second, maybe we'll spend a bit more time on this one. You have to be aware and beware of an ambition to increase your standard of living. This is probably the biggest threat facing, uh, facing Christians in the 21st century. What I mean by that is, is very often with an increase in income comes an increase in lifestyle. And when that happens, you'll never be able to give. Certainly not joyfully. You'll always be barely making it. When lifestyle increases, so does expenditure. And that increase, right, maybe, it, uh, maybe you get a raise, maybe it's a debt paid off, maybe it's a windfall. That increase that would have allowed you to be more generous gets eaten up by an increase in expenses. Let me give you an example. 
There are people who struggle to put fuel in their car, and there are people who struggle to put fuel in their jets, and they grumble about it. There are people whose uh, finances are tight because of a mortgage on a thousand foot, square foot home. There are people whose finances are equally tight because of a mortgage on a 10,000 square foot home. And if you want proof of this, 78% of professional athletes, 7, 8, go bankrupt within three years of retirement. They had million dollar incomes, they lived million dollar lives, and they paid for it. So if you want to be generous, you must live below your means. I mean, Ecclesiastes 5.10, listen to this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. If you love money, you'll never be satisfied with money. But if you want to live joyfully, to give joyfully, to be generous without feeling the pinch financially, or feeling the pinch marginally financially, you have to make a conscious decision to live below a lifestyle you could otherwise afford. You have to live below your means if you want to be able to be joyfully generous. Probably the most practical bit of advice I could give you. Another, and take that along with the previous one, don't overextend. Right? Don't take debt you can't afford. Don't take trips you can't afford. Don't eat out all the time if you can eat at home. And this will free you to be generous. Right? Let me give an example of all of this. Uh, let's say you've done all of those things and you pay off your house early. You haven't been eating out. And now you've created for yourself, having paid off your mortgage, an excellent in- uh, opportunity for generosity. Well, you should think of it that way. This doesn't mean... This doesn't mean... Uh, you can't spend on some of the things that God has given us in this world to enjoy. First Timothy 6, again, it says God richly provides everything for us to enjoy. He doesn't say to the rich, you must become poor, though he may say that to some, like he said to the rich young ruler. But he says be generous. And as Christians, this is a convicting thought. As, as Christians, one of our first thoughts should be when... We're economically increased. How can I use this to store up treasures in heaven and advance the kingdom and seek first the kingdom? Not, what can I afford now or save now because now I have all of this extra disposable income. What I'm saying is, is Christians, if your means increase, on your mind ought to be, not first, how can I increase but what can, I, what can I afford to give? And maybe the increase will be half what it could have been. Another practical application is to recognize that we do have financial obligations as Christians. We really do have financial obligations as Christians, things we are commanded to give to. And one is to uh, the teachers and the maintenance of the local church. This is explicit in 1 Timothy 5.18 and 1 Corinthians 9.9. A worker is worthy of his wages. This is also a problem in the Old Testament. People stop tithing, just going to keep it for themselves. And all of the Levites, who were the teachers in the Old Testament, that was one of their jobs, was to teach the ordinances of the Lord to the people. They couldn't afford to live. 
couldn't afford to maintain the temple. The temple fell into ruins. They couldn't eat, so they left the temple, went out to fields, found fields somewhere to work because they didn't inherit any. And they left their positions of ministry so they could go and do this. And when you read about these instances, what you realize is God is never angry at the Levites for doing that, but He is angry at the people for not supporting them. The reason I add to the local church here is even though there's not an explicit command, it's implied over and over again. For example, Jesus' ministry. How many of you know how Jesus' ministry was supported? You know? Luke 8, 3. Many prominent women ministered to Jesus out of their means. Many prominent women minister to Jesus out of their means. What's that mean? Well, one, it means that your giving is a kind of ministry. It's how you minister to the kingdom, minister to the advancing of it. And these women ministered to Jesus out of their means. Paul was supported, yes, by some of his own tent making, but often he was sent gifts from the churches to support him in ministry, so much so that he was able to rent a home to teach out of in the city of Rome. And in Acts 19, so that's Acts 28, in Acts 19, he rented a lecture hall, lecture hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus, and taught there every afternoon. And so we're called financially to support our local ministries. And you say, well, I don't know how the money's being spent. How can I be? Well, become a member of the church and you can sit in on the budget meetings and you'll find out exactly how it's spent. You'll even get to have a say in it. Another thing we're commanded to do is to care for the poor. To remember uh, them and to remember especially those of the household of faith. There should be no poor people in the church. In fact, providing for the poor provides the backdrop of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. They were collecting money to send to the church in Jerusalem. So providing for the poor in the church, and not just the poor in this church, but the poor in the church universal. And not just in the church universal, but providing for the poor outside of the church is a Christian obligation. Doing good in the world with the finances God has given. You know, you remember the parable of the shrewd servant? You remember he was found mismanaging the funds and, uh, and the, uh, the owner came and said he's, he's going to fire him for mismanaging the money. And so what's he do? He calls in other people and he tells them, you, you, how much did you owe my master? And they said 50 gallons of oil. And he says, write down 20 and pay him that. You owed him, what, 70 bushels? Write down 50 and pay him that. The master comes and commends the shrewdness of the man. You know what the point of that is? Wicked men in this sinful world use their money to increase their standing in the world. He increased his standing in the eyes of these people so that when he was fired, he'd have a place to go. They'd say, I know you. You're the one who slashed my debt in half. You come and stay with me. Jesus' point is, if wicked men will do that for wicked means then how much more should Christians be about using what they have to get a good name in the world and make friends for eternity? Another we're commanded to do is to provide for missions, provide for the advancement of the gospel. We're told to pray for this in the Lord's Prayer. We're told to labor for it in the Great Commission. We ought then to be willing to support what our, uh, with our money what we pray and labor for. And... One other thing we're obligated to provide for, and I think this is important to say, we're obligated to provide for our families. 1 Timothy 5.8 You don't provide for your family, you're worse than a pagan. 
And the reason I put it here is by way of warning. Right? Don't think there's any value in starving your family to give to ministry. There isn't. Jesus actually rebukes the Pharisees for doing just this. You remember? He says, you annul the commands of God by your traditions. For the Bible says, or for the, for the Lord has said, honor your father and mother. But you say, ah, oh, what I would have used to support you is Korban, that is dedicated to the temple. And so I can't help you anymore because I've given all of my money to the temple. You're out of luck, mom, dad. Don't do that. And the reason I say this is because it's very easy to imagine somebody zealously giving all of they have to live on to the church. But if that would prevent them from obeying the Lord in other areas, He's commanded us to financial faithfulness. It isn't righteous even if we do it cheerfully. You know, and this doesn't mean you, know, you, you, you live a luxury lifestyle. But it means you do provide. You know, some people may do this cheerfully, but uh, their, their wife and children may disagree. And lastly, don't ever give in to the temptation that says, I need more before I can really give. Right? That's a temptation, right? I would give, but I just need a little more. If I had a million dollars, I would do this and this and this ministry. And maybe you would. But what are you doing with the $10 in your pocket right now? Right? He who is faithful with little will be given much. I'll end with a question because it's the question that Christian giving always points us to. How are your finances reflecting your appreciation of the gospel, the example of Christ? and your love for God. That's, that's the measure. How are they reflecting those things today? Not a year from now, not ten years from now when you expect to be better off. What does it look like today? That's the measure. And so if you want to know how much, could anyone look at your finances and say, this person loves Jesus Christ. Is that what your finances communicate? Because that's what we're called to as Christians. Love for Christ. Give in accordance with that. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that Lord, our giving would reflect our love for You. Lord, that we would not be uh, Lord, that we would believe that he who sows liberally reaps liberally. God, you are real. When a person sets in their heart and their mind to give because they love you and they want to give, you notice that, God. It doesn't go overlooked. And nobody will ever be hurt because of what they've given, Lord. I pray that you would help us to believe that. And Lord, I... I also pray that people wouldn't be overzealous and, and starve their families or do things like that. There may be some who decide to do that, Lord, but I, I pray that it would be a, a unanimous decision in the household. And I pray that, 
nobody would, would misunderstand me and think that they don't love God because they can't afford to give much, that they would remember the widow who gave all that she had to live on. That there is giving according to our means, and the means are different for everyone. And Lord, I pray for those who, who have much. Thank You for their generosity. And I pray, Lord, that their generosity would reflect their love for You. Lord, that their giving would be a testament to You and a blessing to You and to Your people. Lord, You don't need it, but it is good for us to give. I pray for anyone who struggles with greed, that they would recognize the cure for their greed is generosity. Giving away. And that You would help us, Lord, to do all that we do for the glory of Your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.